how you doing? You know, we ask that question all the time, and part of the time we lie. How you doing? I'm great. And if you're great, rock on. If you're not, I'm not suggesting you unload of all of that on the greeter out in the lobby. But hopefully there's a place in each of our lives where when we're not great for all kinds of reasons, it's healthy to be able to say that out loud. And whoever we say it to doesn't run away screaming because that's not the goal. We are in week 30 of the story. And if uh, you wanted to title this, if you're a note taker, this might be titled Letter from Death Row. You might go, that sounds kind of somber. It isn't, but we'll see where that goes this morning. Last week, Andy led us through this dramatic transformation of the Apostle Paul. But before he was the Apostle Paul, he was a Pharisee, Saul. And he hated the gospel and he hated the church because he believed that it was a perversion, that it was heresy. And he purposed to stamp it out. Good news is he was quite unsuccessful. He also met Jesus on the road and he got knocked on his rear end, which I think might be good for all of us from time to time. And so that leads us to this week. And then next week is, whoo, it's the good one. Next week is Jesus comes back to get all of his people. And we're not going to solve all of this. Is he coming back then or now? Or uh, I'm a pan-millennialist, if you ever think about the millennial view. And you go, I've never heard of pan-millennialism. Pan-millennialism believes it will all pan out in the end. It's sort of a dad joke with some theology. But it is likely, we're going to be in 2 Timothy this morning, that these words were penned from a Roman prison. Paul was not unfamiliar with Roman prisons, but many of his imprisonments had been this kind of country club experience where he got to rent his own house and his friends came and ministered to his needs, and it was like prison light. But if we can trust historians, which is always a bit risky, they would suggest that the place Paul was imprisoned at this point was a nasty dungeon kind of setting. This wasn't the place where you were thinking, hey, I'm going to get paroled. This was the place where you knew pretty much you were awaiting execution. So at this point in his life, we can imagine Paul has a perspective that you only get after you've lived a long time and experienced quite a little bit. And so he writes these words to Timothy. Think about where he's writing these from for a minute. He had quite a resume. Paul had been hated, shipwrecked, stoned in the biblical way. <laughs> Snake bit, abandoned by his colleagues and allies, imprisoned, beaten, and now facing death. It sounds a whole lot to me like a country western song. Come on, it's okay. But Paul sees the finish line in sight as he writes to Timothy, and Timothy was a youngish man that, as best we can tell, Paul had mentored and partnered with for between 10 and 20 years. They had a lot of experience together. They had faced death together, and as best we can tell, Timothy was probably in Ephesus when he received this letter and might we do well to recognize while it was addressed to Timothy, it's addressed to each of us and the church throughout the ages. Paul had been through the ringer, yet he writes in 2 Timothy 1, 12, 
I am not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Don't you just love the heart there? Is I'm not ashamed. If all of us had been in jail, you know, now you go, he was in jail for righteousness sake, but we're judgy as a people. And sometimes we start judging before we know the whole story. So if you go, hey, I'm Paul, I was in, you weren't you the guy in prison? Yeah. But he says, I'm not ashamed. Why not? Because he knew why he'd been imprisoned. He knew what was at stake. And it says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed. Now, if it's the old church hymn, it's believed, which isn't really how it's pronounced. And he says, I'm convinced that he, being God, is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So when you're 20 years old, that day, referring to your death, feels like forever. And then as the days go by, that day draws closer. I was joking with Steve Elder this morning that 20 years older than you is always old. It's a moving target. So if you're 54, as I am, and you go, man, you look really young for that, or it's been 54 hard years, look at that any way you want, is old is always 20, 30 years out there. Well, Paul is at the end of his days, and he says, hey, I am all in because I know who I trust, and he's bringing me to that day. But there's lots of other things going on in this passage, and some of it is what Paul stood for was constantly being mocked. It's believed that he was in prison, and his demise came at the hands of Nero. And whatever you know about Nero is he was a scummy guy. And he chose to persecute Christians to take the focus off of his own political failings. And Paul knows that that is coming. So he speaks these words to Timothy and us in 2 Timothy 2, 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Those words are spoken to you and I to not be ashamed, to do our best to handle the word of God. How do we do that? By being students of the word of God. Now, that's risky because we can all get on the Bible app or things of that nature, and we can find reading plans, and I think that's a phenomenal tool. The danger is, is that becomes a checkbox, Anybody ever struggle with that? Is I read a chapter from the Old Testament and a chapter from the New Testament, and so I've checked it off for the day. I don't think that's a bad practice. But if we're going to handle the Word of God appropriately and with confidence, it would be best if it pulls us into itself. Now, what I love, what Paul didn't say to Timothy and us by proxy, is he didn't say, hey, you've got to be perfect. You've got to have all the answers. If you ever hear somebody saying they definitively know all of God's word, run far and fast because nobody has that all figured out. Revelation is a good one. We could get 10 alleged experts on our stage and ask them to share their view of Revelation and they would probably all be a little bit different. Does it matter? I don't know that it matters a whole lot. Jesus is coming for the church. If it's today, tomorrow, or a thousand years, and you go, ah, oh, I don't want it to be a thousand years. 
but believers, followers of Christ, have been anticipating the return of Christ for approximately 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. Good news, right? It's going to happen at some point, but to be people that handle the Word of God well is the challenge Paul gives to this young preacher. We are always in need of direction. Would you agree with that? Yeah. We always need coaching and mentoring and course correction. So in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verses 22 and 23, Paul says to us and Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. Now, I was recently reminded that some of you as parents don't allow your kids to use the word stupid. So I just want to point out that that's what the scripture says. That wasn't me. Paul tells us to not get caught up in meaningless stuff. And he suggests in verse 22 to flee or run away from those things. Has there ever been a culture that's been more contentious than the one we live in right now? And we can argue about everything. Some of it, uh. now I would argue with you quite strongly that the very best cookie you could ever eat is an oatmeal raisin cookie. Who's with me? All right, you are the wise and discerning people. That's not really true. You're free to like any kind of cookie you want, but how ridiculous might it be if we had a knockdown drag out about what's the best cookie? Because how do you know? Now, I, you go, yeah, you like all cookies, and that's true. I, I will eat all cookies for the most part. I haven't found one that I haven't liked a lot yet, but I'm going to prefer oatmeal reason, raisin because there's a reason. I don't know. It's a stupid argument, isn't it? It's foolish because there's no value in it. And Paul is looking at life from this end game lens, and he's saying, don't waste time and energy on meaningless stuff. This is me walking way out on thin ice and making the camera people crazy. Sorry. This whole last 18 months, we can get sideways over things we are never going to agree on. Can I get a little of an amen there? Do we need to agree? <laughs> you're like, now you're meddling. <laughs> We can't agree, so when we go back to the Word of God, it says just don't have anything to do with that because it says there quite clearly they produce quarrels. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand at this because I know the answer, but it's likely that some of our families have gone like this over the last 18 months, and how tragic is that, that there are families that are not seeing or not talking or not communicating over these kinds of things. The word warns us, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, inspired by God. Don't do it. Flee. Hmm. But Paul doesn't quit teaching because that was his heart. Second Timothy, Timothy, uh, I just got these lips this morning. Second Timothy, he is revealing to Timothy what to anticipate. And he gives kind of this really dark image in the last days people's brains will quit working. It doesn't literally say that, but that's the reality. It says they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Have nothing to do with them. 
And I don't think the Apostle Paul is telling us to be cliquish or snobbish, but he's suggesting getting pulled in to these mindsets or ideologies that say, well, you can believe whatever you want. And you can, all the way to eternity and separation from God. We can believe anything we want, but this is the living truth, the Word of God. Now, in the climate we're living in right now, there's a lot of folks that are saying, this is what this verse means. This is what this verse means. Eh, Let's go back to have nothing to do with foolish arguments. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, it's not foolish. In the grand scheme of things, a lot of the things we argue about end up being foolish. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, is seeing this clearly. Talk with somebody who's 85, they have some wisdom. How did they get it? They lived long enough, they survived some experiences, and then they have some things to share with us. We don't know Paul's exact age, but he wasn't a young guy. So how do we do these things? By seeking the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what's the standard for our lives? The Word of God. Is that always comfortable? Uh, No. Sometimes it forces us to confront our own blind spots, our own selfishness, our own brokenness. And would it be okay to suggest we're all selfish and broken in some fashion? Is that too personal? (laughs) It's true. So the Word of God, and, and I don't pretend to understand exactly how that all worked, was like the Holy Spirit camped out in a room going, Paul, write these words. In some fashion, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, we see personality in the Scripture. We see Paul's idioms. We see his training as a Pharisee. He was an educated man. Read through the Gospels. They all have different experiences. If you haven't watched The Chosen yet, I want to encourage you to watch The Chosen. Is it all 100% biblical? No. But are they departing from the truth of Scripture? I don't see anything yet. But there's a scene, I think in season two, where John is writing, and I think it's Jesus' mom says, well, why are you writing that? Because Luke is writing, and Mark is writing, and Matthew is writing, and he says, kind of with a wry grin, he says, Matthew's writing only what Matthew saw. It's a little shady, at least from my perspective, because he's sort of saying, well, Matthew's Matthew. And if you haven't watched The Chosen, Matthew is Matthew. You need to watch it because they paint a pretty realistic picture that they weren't all perfect, just like us. Jesus gathered a bunch of knuckleheads because those were his only options. Same for all of us. Now, the good news is when we get to glory, we're all made whole. Think, Think of the things we won't say in heaven. I just love that. You won't say, oops. You won't say, I'm sorry. You won't say, forgive me. Ah, hallelujah. We'll all be made whole. There'll be no aches or pains. My knees won't click when I get up and all of that garbage. But that's going to be pretty insignificant compared to being in the presence of Jesus. So Paul, you can imagine, he's kind of winding up and he gets to chapter 4 and this is pretty personal. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. 
There's a gentleness of heart. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Paul's getting pretty real with Timothy. Hey, dude, when I was on trial, everybody bailed. That's the Rick translation. But he says, I am not holding it against them. So I'm meddling again. You got anybody you're holding bitterness or resentment towards? Who suffers? We do. When we hold bitterness and resentment, it poisons us. So the Apostle Paul is in essence saying, hey, I don't have any bitterness or resentment, even though those turkeys bailed on me. But the Lord stood at my side. Have you ever felt just like almost completely alone? Probably most of us have had that feeling or that experience. But the good news is what the Apostle Paul reminds us here of is the Lord always stands at the side of his people with his children. So Paul is honest and real, he's gracious and kind, and he points back towards Jesus, back towards Jesus. Same God today. And then in that same chapter, chapter four, a few verses earlier, Paul writes his own eulogy, and he reminds us, 2 Timothy 4, six through eight, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, and here's the good news, folks, but all who have longed for his appearing. If we could visit Paul's tomb and look at his tombstone, might it be that what we're seeing here he would write the words, no regrets. At the end of his days, he's all shipwrecked, beaten, abandoned, and he speaks these words through the word of God, is no regrets. My hope is this begins to stir us towards the eventual finish of our races. The last time I checked, one out of one people die. It's a universal reality that all of us will face. And as believers, we don't need to fear death because we know that we take our last breath and we're in the Lord's presence. The tough part is the dying. I'm not scared of death. The dying thing, eh, I'd kind of like to skip that, wouldn't you? You want to be just like Enoch? It says Enoch walked with God and he was not. And that's pretty cool. He got to skip the dying part. And poor Lazarus, he had to come back and do it again. I wonder if that's why Jesus wept in part, because he's like, oh man, Lazarus is going to have to die again. Maybe they had a little conversation offline. I, I don't know, sanctified imagination. But bottom line, and I just want to revisit verses 7 and 8. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. We've looked at some of his biography. It was a brutal fight. All of those times, all of those years spent in prison, away from a ministry that he'd been called to, but yet he says God used it. The whole Roman centurions, that all of those people heard about the gospel when Paul was in chains. 
Talk about a captive audience, literally. So he says, I fought the good fight. If you and I were sitting this afternoon, which I triple dog dare you to do this, because apparently triple dog dares are the most powerful ones. I triple dog dare you to sit down with a pad of paper, or if you're a techie, you can type it, write your own eulogy. And it doesn't have to be morbid. It might be a good idea, because then you get to say what you want to say. Maybe you need to give it to the funeral home right now. But could we say, I have fought the good fight? It'll indicate struggle. It'll indicate the reality that we've dealt with every day. He goes on to say, I have finished the race. Where are you at in your race today? I don't understand long distance runners. Bill, where are you? I saw Bill is a runner. I've asked Bill for years. We've spent a lot of time in the mountains. I'm like, Bill, what's the thing about running? Oh, it's fun. And I'm not sure he's, you know, not lying to me a little bit. I'm kidding. I don't think Bill would lie to me. I don't get it. I don't think running is fun. If you ever see me running around town, two things have happened. One, I've run out of ammo. And two, somebody bigger than me is chasing me because I'm not a runner. But in the race of life, you might be in the first hundred yards or you might be in the last half mile. Can we say, I have finished the race with confidence in who God is in me and how I've lived for him? None of us know. It could be today or tomorrow. And I don't say that to stir any fear. But if we opened up the obituaries or our social media this morning, somebody potentially in our circle took their last breath yesterday not knowing they were going to take their last breath. So finish the race. And then the last piece there, he says, I have kept the faith. He's already been honest about his struggles and his human part of him. But could we say this morning at the end of our days, if this was it, I have kept the faith. Now, here's the danger is we all go to shame and guilt. Well, I've kept the faith except for that. And I've kept the faith except for that. Well, that's where God's grace covers over us and intervenes. None of us are perfect. And grace is so significant because it covers over our imperfections. But if we were writing our eulogy this afternoon, because I triple dog dared you, could you write in some fashion, I've kept the faith as God has enabled me? And he goes on to say, a crown awaits all who have longed for his appearing. I wish we were like having this conversation, just a few of us at a time, and we could say, hey, what are you most anticipating about heaven? Each of us would probably have something different, but that crown of life, that for believers, death is simply a step into God's presence. And the apostle Paul got that, and he's speaking it over the life of Timothy and over each of us and over the body of Christ. What if we live in the last days? What if Christ's return, well, it is more imminent than it was yesterday. But what if it were to happen in the next year? Oh, that would be so cool. Wouldn't it? What if it's before you mow your yard? That, Jesus, just come back before I'm mowing the yard. Or whatever the task is, and to be able to say, Jesus, because of you in me, there has been faithfulness, and I can say some of these same things that Paul wrote. Now, for those sitting in this room or sitting online, is you might go, I don't know if I can say that. 
I'm not sure if this was my last day whether I could really say I've fought the fight and kept the faith and finished the race with confidence. And gang, there's no bigger question. And we've got some folks at the decision points. They, don't, they can't explain all of Revelation. Sorry, guys. I, I don't think they're stressed by that. They don't need to explain all of Revelation. Jesus is king. He's coming back. But if he's not your king, that maybe ought to happen today. And it might be you're sitting in a room and you go, ah, the king thing is pretty good. I'm not worried about dying, but I want to I know more about keeping the faith just in a tangible way. And these fellows are there to just pray and offer a word of encouragement. And then for us to dive into the word in a way that that fruit begins to be evident in our lives and God gets the glory. Might be that you're just smack in the middle. You're running your race. You're having a runner's high, which I don't really believe exists, but maybe you are. And it's just the sweetest season you've had in a really long time with Jesus. Tell somebody. Just grab them and go, hey, can I tell you how cool God is in my life? And I just want to gush a little bit. We gush about stupid stuff all the time. I said stupid, sorry. But don't we, hey, and, and, you know, the people that love us go, okay, cool, you'll be over that. I'll be over it in nine seconds because there'll be something new. But to gush over God and his love for us and his faithfulness, which is what the Apostle Paul is doing in these final days of his life, what a privilege. Let's stand and let's sing.